look forward to spending the next three hours with you. <laughs> At lunch, I meant. So. All right, let me get set up here real quick, and then we will get going. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the desire you give us to study it, to know you more. I pray that this morning that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand what your word has to say regarding this passage. And I just pray, Father, that you would speak through me. I am not trained in this. I am far from perfect in this, Lord. And, uh, but you are, so I pray that you would speak, use me, um, that it would touch the lives of those here and that they would take it and talk to people about it in their own lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, take your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Now, while you guys are turning there, I'm going to do a, a short review. As you know, I taught through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John many years ago at, in, in our Sunday school class. So I've kind of decided to, when, whenever the need arises, I would just sermonize, if you will, those Sunday school lessons, and we can go through them again. Um, probably, if you're honest, you, you probably don't remember everything we talked about, which is good. It's, it's good to remind ourselves about these, these lessons and these points and the, these precepts that are taught here. So before we go through this passage, I'm going to do a short review of chapter 1 because it's so, there's so much time that passes between the times that I teach. So um, first of all, when we look at chapter 1, John is the author. You know, that's, not, that's not a tough thing. But he's writing this letter as a response to false teachers that have come into the church. We call these teachers now Gnostics, but back then they weren't really called that. They were just false teachers. They were spreading false um, doctrine throughout the church. So he began this letter by communicating his position, first of all, as an apostle and, more importantly, even an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. He offered his testimony to the reality of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, all those things that he said were real, things that he saw that he's able to actually talk about, and he has a unique uh, authority to do so. Now, this was important because he needed to refute the teachings of these false teachers. So what were these teachers teaching? Well, here's just a few things. Uh, well, they, they, thought, they said, they taught, you cannot know God, that that's impossible. They taught that God didn't create the world that it just happened to him. It just came out of him without any kind of control. They taught, and this is the one people tend to remember, that matter or your flesh is evil, but your spirit is good. So anything you do in the body, sin-wise, doesn't really matter, doesn't really count. It kind of gave them a license to sin, if you will, okay? Um, and then finally, they taught that Jesus was, a, was only a spirit, that he was not and that he was not god okay so all these false teachings are going along and confusing the church there 
Now, John countered all this by declaring that God is noble in as much as he has revealed to us in Scripture, okay? That he created all things through the power of his hand. That man is completely sinful, flesh and spirit, and that his acts are sinful. And finally, he taught that Jesus was fully God, eternal, Messiah, sinless, fully God, again, fully man, and redeemer of those who believe from the penalty of sin. He can do that because he is fully God and fully man. He can be that. Now, John only taught, not only taught, that Jesus was a real man with flesh, but that he was also God, which gives him the power in the cross to save men, okay? Now, last time we spoke, we looked at verses 5 through 10 back in chapter 1. And it's been a while, so we'll spend a few minutes talking about these specific verses because in a larger context, they go with the passage today, okay? Now, the best way to understand this passage is, is to read it a little bit out of order. So that's how we're going to do it this morning. John here is contrasting a true believer from a false believer, okay? So let's read first back on chapter 1. And we're going to read these, these verses, 5, 7, and 9, in that order, which refer to a true believer. So I'll read that for you. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, now we're going to read verses 6, 8, and 10, which refer to a false believer. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10 says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. The first thing John declares in verse 5 is that God is light, and that in him there is no darkness at all. This was different than the God that the false teachers were describing. Their God contained both good and evil. You ever seen that yin, yin and yang thing? That's sort of what they believed. There was, there was both darkness and light in God. John refutes that. Second, John gave some tests to identify true believers from false ones. He states that if you claim that you have fellowship with God, but walk in darkness, meaning you have a pattern of sin in your life, that you are lying and not living according to the truth. Also, if anybody claims to be without sin, or in verse 10, claims to have not sinned, okay, they are deceived. They make God out to be a liar because his word teaches that mankind is both sinful in both their spirit and in their flesh. Mankind has no hope to escape the penalty of sin outside of Jesus. Now, however... In verse 7, if you walk in the light, striving to live righteously and desiring 
to be in the light where our Savior is, we do have fellowship with God and other believers in Christ. In verse 9, John states that a true believer is one who confesses their sin. They agree with God that they are sinful and confess sin to him who is able to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. The test here is between those who claim and those who walk. Those who talk and those who do. Okay? Let's turn to Matthew 7. We're going to look at verses 21 through 23. I think this is a good passage also to have highlighted or underlined in your Bible. Twenty-one through twenty-three of Matthew seven says, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven." Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles?" Then I will tell them plainly, "I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers." The reality of our salvation, and it's funny because we talked a lot about this during our Sunday school hour too. The reality of our salvation is evidenced by our walk. Jesus said, only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The reality of our salvation is evidenced by our walk. It's evidenced in our lives. Understand that if you're clinging to a past event where you professed faith in Jesus, but in your life you continue to walk in darkness, you need to repent and follow Christ as Lord. That's one of those things that we talked about this morning, those evidences that are in a true believer's life, okay? You see these evidences of a true believer just in their daily life. When you're around somebody, you know that they're a believer by the way that they walk and by the way they conduct themselves. Now, this leads us to our text today. So that was just a short review. But this leads us to our text today, which is in chapter 2. And we'll, let's read together verses 1 through 6, okay? My dear children, I love the way John is, John's heart is in this letter this way. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anybody, anyone, obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. How do we know? Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This is clear, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The first part of verse 1, which some people look at that verse, that little first part of verse 1, and go, what in the world is he saying? But it's actually the conclusion from verses 5 through 10, okay? 
Um, remember the verse, Darren talked about this this morning, verses, chapter headings, those kind of things are not inspired. So sometimes they put them in, a, in the opportune place. In those verses earlier that we read, John taught that a true follower of Christ does not continue living a sinful life. Let's read verse 1, but only the very first part of it again. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So again, John starts off this section with the statement, my dear children. And this just demonstrates his love for them. He uses the same phrase seven times in this short book as he's talking to his body. This is the way a pastor, now he wasn't their pastor. He, was over, he oversaw all these churches. But this is the, the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of the leader of a body is that he, fee, he sees people and thinks of them almost as children as they grow in the word. He is tender with them like you would be with a child as you're trying to explain things to them. But then next he drops this on you. I write this so that you will not sin. And with all that was said in verses 5 through 10 back in chapter 1, the conclusion is do not sin. The word here that John uses for sin is to miss the mark. Okay? So you ask, what is this mark? It's the standard that's set in Scripture. Some examples of this are the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath. I think we can all agree. The commands that are given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is another example. And there's much, much more in Scripture. But not sin? Is this unrealistic for John to command? Because take it, that was a command. That wasn't a suggestion. I hope you don't sin. You probably shouldn't sin. He says, do not sin. That is a command. So why is he at telling us this? Is this unrealistic for him to say it? No, it's not. It's not unrealistic because a true follower of Christ does not walk in darkness, does not have a consistent, prolonged pattern of sin in their lives. Rather, a true believer understands this as an encouragement to what? To live righteously. A true believer is acutely aware, we talked about again this, this, this morning, is acutely aware of their sin and relies on God's strength as he sanctifies him. We need to understand that we are no longer slaves to sin and can, with God's help, stop the consistent patterns of sin that have entrapped us our entire lives. There is freedom from these sinful patterns in Christ. But we must understand that sin is the enemy and it disrupts fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. Do not think that you can harbor sin in your lives and have fellowship with God. But, again, the good news is that God helps us fight our desire to sin and sanctifies us through his power. This is a long reference, and I'll read it slowly, but it applies perfectly to this topic in the first part of chapter 2, verse 1. So it's very important for us to understand this. Turn to Romans 6, chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 18, okay?
my biggest decision was where to trim this off because it's so good. Okay, let's go ahead and read this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. And just stop here for just a moment. And as you read this through, it shows a, com a complete commitment. It's not just a halfway commitment. It's a complete commitment. A slave wasn't halfway committed to his master. He must serve his master. Let's move on. And this is the uh, example that Paul's going to use here, starting in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Absolutely not. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God who, that through, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You, this is wonderful, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Intellectually, that's interesting, but to your spirit, it should give you great joy that you aren't slaves to these sinful patterns in your life anymore. It's a wonderful and a challenging passage, and we'll leave it there, and we will... Look forward to Darren teaching through this in two more years, all right? But I challenge, you all, I challenge all of you all the time to continually examine your life, okay? Ask yourself, do I feel more comfortable with my sin or with God? If we are more comfortable with our sins, the answer is to turn from that sin, repent, this is the message that needs to be always taught in the gospel. Repent. Turn aside from doing that. You confess it to God. Begin by obeying his word and following him as Lord. Stop rebelling against the Lord. And in humbleness, turn to him in obedience and walk in the light. Scripture is clear about this. Let's, you don't have to turn here. I'll read it for you. James 1 Verses 21 through 22, we just talked about this, but I wanted to bring it up again. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly, accepted, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 21 turns on the word humbly. This is somebody who is broken over their sin, who comes to the Lord in repentance, not somebody who with pride says, I can fix this on my own. Okay? But what happens when we do sin? Well, John is going to talk about this in the next verses. 
Let's read. We're going to be in verse 1, but the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. I'll read this for you. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now in verse 1, this is interesting, the Greek grammar of the phrase, if anybody does sin, was written in a way that conveys the strong possibility that it would occur. The idea that John is conveying here is clearer when you put it this way. If anybody sins, and it will happen, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Did you just have a little sigh of relief inside? We, we can't approach it that way. We can't look at this and approach it with that manner of thought that, oh, there's a loophole. We, like, we, like, we love loopholes. We need to understand the impact of sin in our lives and stop taking for granted Jesus' sacrifice and his work as an advocate. Yes, he is those things. He is that. He is our advocate. Can't take that for granted. This is what Paul is saying. Does that mean we just continue to sin? Some people actually said that's the way Christians lived. They just sinned and did whatever they want because they're forgiven. But living in a fallen world, we all struggle with sin. We have other gods before the Lord. Yes, there is modern-day idolatry. Just look at people's lives. Look at your own life. We are flippant in our misuse of the name of the Lord using God told me to justify our own desire to do something, for example. We don't honor our parents. We hate, thus we murder. We lust and commit adultery. We take what is not ours and we justify it. We do not love our neighbor. We lie and we covet what others have. I just went down through the commandments. If we're honest with ourselves, each one of us has broken most if not all, of these in our lives. I have broken every single one of these in my life. And the truth is that just any one of these can send us to hell for eternity. Well, when you put it that way, is there any question that we need to be saved? Praise God for providing a way of salvation through Jesus our Lord. That is the message that we give others they, they, so they understand that they need to be saved. Now, John goes on to say that when we sin, Jesus is our advocate who speaks to the Father on our behalf. So since we have Jesus as our advocate defending us when we sin, what should our attitude be regarding sin? We should view God's judgment with sobriety and respect. We should remember how much was given for our redemption. We should take sin seriously and not play around with it or try to get as close to it as we can. Edging close to that like a little kid, getting closer and closer to it. The free gift of salvation that God gave us cost Jesus dearly. Yet because of his love for us, he endured the torture and the cross but even worse than that, worse than any of the physical pain 
he was made sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John MacArthur states regarding this verse, all those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them. And he was punished with the penalty for them on the cross, experiencing the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against them all. It was at that moment Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is crucial, therefore, to understand that the only sense in which Jesus was made sin was by imputation. He was personally pure, yet officially culpable. Personally holy, yet forensically guilty. But in dying on the cross, Christ did not become evil like we are, nor do redeemed sinners become inherently as holy as he is. Here's the good news. God credits believers' sin to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness to theirs. End quote. What Jesus endured on the cross was awful, but he stands in the presence of God and states that our sin has been paid for when the accuser accuses us over and over and over again. The enemy tries to get, get sin counted to, to our cost. But Jesus' righteousness has been imputed, given to us that follow him. The truth is that while inevitable, sin should be avoided in a believer's life. Now, we all struggle with sin, even though we are redeemed. However, we are no longer slaves to sin. I think that's an important thing for us to really realize. That we don't have to sin. We're not caught. As, we're, not caught we're not obligated to do that. If someone is a slave, they have to do what their master commands them to do. When someone is not saved, their master is sin. And when we are saved, sin is no longer our master. This kind of helps sometimes when you wonder what in the world or why in the world People do what they do. The people in the world, the people that are unsaved, are slaves to sin. They don't have the same mind. Sin to a believer should not be taken lightly. The goal to live a righteous life needs to be of utmost importance. We have many, many things in our lives that we count as important. Is that one of the ones on that list for you? Is it on the top of the list? The price of our sin is costly, and Jesus paid such a high price for our salvation. Do not treat it lightly. Do not take his grace for granted. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We learned in Hebrews many years ago, that Jesus is our great high priest. He is God and man. His sacrifice and blood he shed means that our sins are forgiven. So let's look together through scripture and see what it says about the sacrifice that Jesus made. First, we are all guilty of sin against God. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law 
and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The standard is very high. So if we stand on our own before God, what did you think the sentence would be? The sentence would be death. Romans 6, uh, verse 23, the very beginning of it says, For the wages of sin is death. Some say when they stand before God, he'll see such a, that they're such a good person, they did so many good things, that they'll just let them in the door. God will let them in the door. However, even the best sinners that have done all the wonderful things that they say they do, they, they, they can't enter the kingdom of God on their own merit. It's impossible. In fact, it is blasphemous pride to even think this way because it discounts what Jesus paid on the cross. It discounts his sacrifice. The truth is that the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, John, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not many ways to God as is taught in this world. There is one. Jesus intercedes with the Father on the basis of his own substitution for sinners in sacrificial death, which paid sin's penalty fully. This met the demands of God's justice. Now verse 2 speaks to one of the most critical doctrines of the Christian faith. This is at the very center of God's redemptive plan. This is propitiation. Your, your translations may use the word like the NIV does, atonement. The term propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice, thus appeasing his holy wrath against sin. Let's turn to Romans 5. I'm going to go to Romans a lot today. Romans 5, we're going to look at verses 10 through 11. It says there, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, not only is this so, but we, can also, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. These are important verses to know. 18 and 19 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he was committed to us, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's a wonderful message. We have a problem that we need to be saved from. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation to tell others about their need for Christ. Through what Jesus did, we are justified. 
And as a result, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How important is that? We have peace with Him. That means we no longer are His enemy. We are His children. The Father's predetermined design and acceptance of His Son's sacrifice as payment in full for our sins answers the dilemma of how He can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's turn back again to Romans. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God's love and his justice were both satisfied equally when he accomplished redemption through Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is a wonderful message. It really, tru it really truly is, and that, that we need to share with other people. Jesus is both the believer's defense attorney and the perfect propitiation for our sins. That truefold, twofold truth is central to the gospel. So John commanded us not to continue in sin, but reminded us that Jesus is our advocate when we do. He reminded us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. But does this cause us to sigh in relief and take sin lightly? I hope not. Absolutely not, in fact. It is the understanding of the awfulness of sin and the determination to avoid it in our lives that marks us as followers of Jesus Christ. When people look at our lives, they see that we, we don't have the desire to live a sinful life. We have a desire to, re, to avoid it. We don't, we, when we sin, we hate it and we confess it to him. We don't want to live a life where we cuddle up to our sin. John states, this is actually really great when you're studying 1 John. He actually states his purpose for writing this letter in chapter 5 in 1 John, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This book is a letter written to assure believers in their salvation because the false teachers were causing great doubt in the lives of believers in the churches. 
they were teaching that not only through that only through special revelation, a special level, that you could actually get salvation or that it can be even found. You had to be enlightened. Like many of false false uh, religions, Scientology is one that comes to my mind that you have to work your way up the levels and keep paying out a lot of money to find out where salvation is, right? He wanted to make sure that he reassured these believers through these tests that he gives in this, in this particular passage, okay? And he includes these. We're going to move on to verses 3 through 6. He includes these, these tests that we can know and reassure us of our salvation. There's also tests here for those who are not in the faith but think that they are. We talked about this this morning as well. They think that they think that they're saved. They made a profession at some point in time, but their lives don't reflect it. And the hope that this message would do was to, would to be bringing those people. They could see the, a true Christian. They could see the facts about atonement, who Jesus is, what our salvation means, and that it would cause them to realize, I don't know Jesus. I'm not walking with him, and that they would repent and follow him. There's also tests here that help the church to be able to spot false teachers by looking at their lives as well as what they teach. So often we look at false teachers by only what they say and what they write. We don't often look at what their lives reflect. We can see, sometimes it's easy to see both. But sometimes it's only easy to see by the way that they live. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God, if, I'm sorry, if, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. A true Christian's life will demonstrate obedience to God's commandments. That's the first test, if you will. As Christians, it is very important to have reassurance of our salvation. This assurance gives us joy and it gives us peace. And here is our peace, that we were enemies of God, but now, because we are redeemed through Christ, we are at peace with him, as we spoke about earlier. In contrast, without assurance of our faith, there is doubt, uncertainty, and fear. We can have assurance in our faith because our salvation is not up to us to hold. John 10, verses 28 through 30 say, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is Jesus speaking, in case you didn't know. But Scripture does instruct people to examine themselves. Many believe that since they made a profession years ago, walked an aisle, accepted Jesus in their heart, as we spoke about this morning, that they are good to go. 
They've punched their ticket. They have the fire insurance. However, when you read Scripture and you study it, you come to the conclusion that while our salvation may may have been at some historical point in our lives, the evidence to whether this was a true conversion is in our current life. Verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. This is a test. Do we desire to be obedient to God's commands? The belief that once saved, always saved is dangerous when people hide an ongoing life of sin behind it. Never be quick to apply that to somebody when their life doesn't doesn't reflect anything, doesn't reflect that they're following the Lord. Don't, don't reassure them and say, oh, I know that Johnny gave his, gave his heart to Jesus when he was three, when Johnny's life has no reflection of following Christ at all. That's, a, that's a, a terrible thing to do. Now, I want to be clear here that I'm not teaching that you can lose your salvation. What I am teaching is that there are many who think they have a saving faith, but their lives do not reflect it. True salvation cannot be lost because it is held by God himself, as we read just, just a minute ago. But you must examine your life. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13.5. And I actually want you guys to mark this in your Bible. And by the way, we have little booklets, I think, still up front that say examine yourselves on them that are based on this. Give you all a second to get there. This is going to be 2 Corinthians 13, 5. This verse says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. What test, you might ask? What is this test? Back in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tell us. The one who says, I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commands or commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John, John doesn't mince words. He will call you a liar if that is indeed the case. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know we are in him. Well, when we look at these these verses, the measuring stick is obedience to his word. Many people, as, as I was listening to the conversations this morning, many people desire to not go to hell but they don't want to change what they're doing. Somebody told me, and I forget, forgive me for whoever told me this, that they they want to be where God is, but at the same time they claim that God has died. You know? And, And so people just want to avoid the punishment, but yet still continue their lives the way that they live them. If we keep his commandments, it demonstrates that we belong to him. 
that we are at peace with him, and that we are in the faith. So why in the world are we so lax in our study of God's word then? Do we think that if we don't know what his commands are, that we will not be responsible for them? If, if, the, if the measurement is obeying God's commands, then the next step is, what are those? And that is so important. If you have, if you have and I want you to be clear, clear on this, if you have no desire or will to study God's word, you have no will or desire to pray, you have no will or desire to obey his commands, then you very well may not be a Christian. I don't want to mince the words here or make it easier to swallow. It's too important. It's life and death. It's eternal life and eternal death. I strongly encourage you to look back at 2 Corinthians 13, 5 often, make sure making sure that you're in the faith. Just as a reminder, what a tragedy it would be if you stand before Jesus one day and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. In that verse, people were calling him Lord, Lord. They were claiming they did these great things. A true believer studies God's words so that they know how to be obedient to him. And then it is active in being obedient. So again, it's more from a, not just an academic exercise. It is a exercise in being obedient, being active that way. And even more than that, a follower makes it a priority to live this way, to study this way, to pray this way. Back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, the word commandments John uses does not refer to the law. I'm talking about the law of Moses. But rather to the precepts and directives of Christ. However, like some people teach that the Old Testament is not relevant today. They're completely wrong. Because the moral and spiritual precepts that the Lord Jesus himself taught were very consistent with those revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. It's almost like Jesus might have been there when he gave that. How do we know what these are? Well, we study his word with the anticipation that the Holy Spirit will teach us what those precepts and commands are and how to apply them to our lives. Always pray before you study scripture. Always ask the Holy Spirit, please teach me. Don't ever think that you've, re, you've obtained some kind of level. Humbly come before his word, apply it to your lives. Jesus wants followers who grow through learning his word. Our salvation, while occurring in some point in time, we are justified at some point in time, is only evidenced by our current life. People can see the sanctification that God is taking us through through the trials, how we handle that, how we handle temptation, how we talk, we act, what we say, what we turn people to when they're having a conversation. But the first of these evidences is obedience. I always think about one of the, the, the biggest traits of Jesus' life 
was his obedience, obedience to the cross, which is, if you didn't, didn't know, was the worst, worst way you could die. How can we prove that we know God, that we follow Christ as Lord? It's through our obedience to his commands, especially, especially when they come at a cost. Sometimes we're all ready to go, ready to obey him until it costs us something. Now, we are not putting the believer here back under the law, but it's a leading trait of a genuine believer's life that they are determined to do the will of God, regardless of the outcome. In this world, that is. Christ walked in obedience, and his meat and drink was to do the will of his Father. Thus, his life in us as believers must be manifest in obedience to the will of God. People see Jesus in us through our obedience to his will. They see we're different. The believer has his heart set on obeying the Lord and doing his will. Though often he fails, stumbles, yet he continues to aim at doing the will of God. For that is the nature of the new life. So many profess to know God, and it is a mere profession because their life doesn't manifest obedience. And the truth of the knowledge of Christ is lacking in them. They are deceiving themselves with perhaps an outward form of godliness. They listen to Christian music. They read Christian books. They wear Christian clothes. But they know nothing of the power of God working in and through their life. Some who live this way enter the church and deceive the flock. Their lives give evidence that they are false teachers. Some are easy to spot. Stephen Furtick, Benny Hinn, those people. Others are not. But when we know the truth of God's word, guess what? It is much easier to see when somebody is a false teacher or when they're a false believer for that matter. So what do we do when we know that? You run from the false teacher, but you minister to the false believer. They're deceived, so be bold with them. Be bold with the truth for their sake. It's a life or death thing. Let's move on to verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Here John doesn't use phrases like we hope, or we think, but he speaks with certainty by saying we know. There's freedom in that, that we know. There is a direct evidence that can be seen in someone's life when it's changed by this transformation. John is communicating this truth out in the open again to say that our, our faith is not something that's hidden, that we don't show to other people. We're not secret agent Christians. Instead, it is the saving knowledge of Christ that comes from being in a right relationship with him, and it's evidence to everyone that comes in contact with our life. So, who do you serve? At the root of sin is an attitude or determination to be the Lord of your own life. But the lie, the deception, is that actually we can never be the Lord of our own lives. See, we serve one of two masters. Either we are a slave to sin, 
or a slave to righteousness. We're either a child of God or we're a child of the enemy. Let's move on to the last verse, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Another attribute of a true believer is Christ-likeness. Just claiming to know Jesus does not just make it true. Titus 1.16 says, They claim to know God, speaking of false believers, or false teachers, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. A test of a Christian is that he makes a practice of abiding in or imitating Christ. Believers are not of this world, as he is not of this world, because they're born again and have Christ's life in them. If we claim to abide in him, we must walk as he walked. He is our pattern, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live a Christ-centered, Christ-controlled life. But how can we know how to pattern our life after Jesus? Well, here's a few suggestions. Study his life. There are four accounts of his life in the Gospels. Be familiar with them. Pray for help. Seek the Lord's help. He is faithful to help you when that is your goal because it is his will. Sit under the teaching of God's word by faithful teachers, not just ones that entertain you. Ask help from your brothers and sisters. That's one we struggle with. Go to a brother, go to a sister who's more mature than you and ask them to help you. Apply what you learn and move beyond the academic and put what you learn into practice. We do this in so many other areas of life. A quarterback will do this for his team. He'll study that playbook and know it by heart, and then he'll go out and he'll execute it. You'll, you'll work really hard creating a business plan, and then you'll go and you'll execute it. We do it all the time. Christians oftentimes just go, I'm saved, now I'm going to go to church, and you just feed me, feed me, feed me. There is a responsibility on our part. When we're teaching up here, you should be basically going, yeah, I agree with that. Or no, I don't know if you got that right, because you already are familiar with that passage. It's not just brand new to you. James 2, 14 through 18. I wanted to make sure we read this one, because it's important. James 2, 14 through 18 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But somebody will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. No, works doesn't save, but works are a result of a true conversion. When you are justified and you're sanctified, you're transformed. There, you are no longer the same person. Your works 
indicate that, show that to the world. Those whose faith is genuine will obey the truth and seek to live a life that mirrors what we see in Christ's life. A true conversion will result in a changed life. It can be no other way. When a person enters into the narrow gate, they start on a new path, a path that the world is not on. We are different to the world. We are different from the world. Stop trying to be like the world. Cast that aside. It's not important. Confess your sin and repent of your lack of obedience. Follow the Lord and make that your priority in life. There is no other way to live for a true believer. Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging passage. It's because it it takes what we know and says, now go and do it. Where's the evidence? Are you executing what I have commanded you in Scripture to do? Father, I pray that you would place on the hearts of all here a desire to know your word to know what you say, to know what you've revealed to us about yourself and to act upon that out of our love for you, our desire to do your will. Father, we will be with you far longer than we are here. So I pray that you would help us to understand that the momentary trouble that we go through here is not important, that the momentary riches, the momentary desires that we have here are not what we want to put our faith in. And I just pray, Father, that we, as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, that would show us uh, your precepts, that we would be a whole body of ministers that minister to all the people that are in our lives as we share the gospel with them. I thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning. I thank you most of all for your word and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.